Welcome to the Dr. Lori Morris podcast, where she interviews experts in health and science, sharing their expertise so you can live your healthiest life. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Fit Vegan Coaching, the world's leading whole food plant-based body recomposition program for Gen X and baby boomers. Founded by Maxime, whose personal journey began after losing his ex-fiance to breast cancer, Fit Vegan Coaching is on a mission to disease-proof the world through the transformative power of plant-based eating and fitness. This program is the Rolls Royce of plant-based coaching, offering all-inclusive services, personalized plans, world-class accountability, lifelong support, and more. Say goodbye to the yo-yo dieting and embrace a lasting transformation that will rev up your metabolism even post-transformation. Ready to take charge of your health and vitality? Head over to fitvegan.ca, that's fitvegan.ca, and mention Dr. Lori for exclusive bonus savings when you sign up. Don't miss this opportunity to join the movement towards a healthier, fitter, and more vibrant you. Are you tired of compromising between convenience and healthy eating? Look no further. Introducing Whole Harvest, your ultimate solution for wholesome plant-based meals. Whole Harvest is redefining the way you eat. Their meals are not only delicious, but also 100% whole food, plant-based without any compromise. Whole Harvest takes pride in their approach. There's no oils, no added sugars, and low sodium. Plus, they have SOS-free menu items available. I recommend Whole Harvest to my patients that need convenient and compliant meals that can be delivered to their home. At Whole Harvest, you can reimagine your favorite dishes with a plant-based flair and enjoy menu items like the All-American Burger, Harvest Lasagna, and Soba Kimchi Bowl. Whole Harvest meals are chef-crafted and made with high-quality ingredients delivered straight to your door. And guess what? They ship nationwide so you can enjoy whole food, plant-based meals no matter where you live. Here's an exclusive offer just for our podcast listeners. Use the discount code PLANTS20 to receive $20 off your first first order. That's PLANTS20, that's P-L-A-N-T-S-20 to receive $20 off your first order. So visit wholeharvest.com, that's W-H-O-L-E-H-A-R-V-E-S-T.com and place your order today. Again, that's wholeharvest.com. Your journey to delicious whole food, plant-based eating starts here. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by The Healing Kitchen, your path to vibrant health. Immerse yourself in the transformative program guided by the combined expertise of myself, Dr. Lori Marbus, and Chef Brittany Giroudi, who has lost 70 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. Here's what's in store for you. Virtual weekly sessions. Engage in an immersive 60-minute virtual session every single week where you'll delve into the world of wholesome plant-based goodness right from your own kitchen. Cooking with Brittany the first half hour. Unleash your inner chef as you're captivated by Chef Brittany Giroudi's culinary mastery that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. Medical Q&A with Dr. Lori the last half hour. Prioritize your well-being during the second half hour. I will personally address your medical inquiries, providing evidence-based insights and personalized advice, empowering you to make informed choices for your health. So join us on the Healing Kitchen to help you step into a healthier and most vibrant future. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today we're going to really have a 
really awesome interview, guys. This is an exciting story, like life-changing story, saving lives with Dr. Stephen Loom today. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, we've been friends a long time and I got to see you again in DC recently. And I heard your story for the first time. We'll get right into it. So let's talk about this half marathon last fall, correct? And yeah, it was uh, November, November 2022, the Monterey Bay half marathon. Uh, it was going to be my first in-person race since the pandemic. And the first uh, race that I did with my two older kids, a 16-year-old and 15-year-old, and, and they were all excited it's a beautiful day. Um, never knew it was going to happen, though. Um, we were uh, about mile three. My kids were a little bit in front of me. Uh, of course, it's hard for me to keep up with them. I had a runner that completely collapsed right in front of me uh, out of nowhere. He, he all, um, I thought, oh, did he just trip or did he you know, faint or something? But as I approached him, it was clear that he was completely unconscious, had no pulse. He wasn't breathing. And so uh, started CPR, you know, pretty quick, and people called 911. Defibrillator arrived, and he was in a fatal rhythm called ventricular fibrillation. We had to shock him. Thank goodness, got him back, and he woke up confused. Wow, you know, I've done that in the hospital uh, quite a few times in my training and in my <laughs> practice, but it never happened to me outside the hospital, especially like in in a race. But thank goodness we got him into the ambulance and he was off to the hospital. I called the ER, give him a heads up and uh, it's like frazzled, but there were still people passing me. So I said, huh, I'm not last, uh, even though I got delayed here. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll keep going. My kids are just thinking dad's slow. Uh, so, wow. so can we back up just a second here? Yeah. So literally you're running a race. It's three miles and you're a cardiologist. I should have prefaced this. You perform CPR, you call the ER, you're still in the middle of the race. So you're like, oh, oh I could still run. So you just get up and start running. Yeah, again. that's pretty much it. I mean, there's nothing more I could do. He was already in the ambulance on his way. Um, <laughs> I just make okay. a phone call to, to tell the ER exactly what happened. And I said, well, now what am I going to do? I mean, I, there's still people going. So uh, <laughs> which which is a blessing because what happens next? Well, yes. Yeah. So I kept going and I crossed the finish line, uh, threw my arms up in the air. Yay. I, I finished. And then I hear somebody say, we need some help over here as, as a, kind of in my peripheral vision, I saw another guy collapse. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This can't be happening again. Uh, he probably just fainted. Uh, he's dehydrated or something like that. Right. And then I, I approach him and, uh, find out, no, he's out. I mean, no pulse, not breathing. He hit his head and started CPR real quick, uh, right away. Um, definitely less than a minute uh, from the time he collapsed. And then uh, the medical tent was at near the finish line. And so a race volunteer quickly brought a defibrillator within about a minute uh, or so. We hooked him up and it said shock advised, meaning again, fatal arrhythmia, ventricular fibrillation. Without shocking, you die. There's no other way to get, get the, uh, the person back. And so delivered one shock. He really quickly woke up and <laughs> look confused. And the first thing he did was he got in his watch and he, he stopped his Strava on his watch. And he's like, I got to get up. And I remember yeah. saying to him, no, man, you just died. Stay down. <laughs> We're getting an ambulance. And he, he was like, what? He was confused. <laughs> uh, and so then wow. um, got him into the ambulance. And I remember calling the ER again and saying, hey, it's, um, it's me again. I got to tell you about another person. And they're like, what's going on here? They were just flabbergasted. Wow. And um, wow. I think one of the most amazing things uh, about this whole story is that both the runners 
made complete full recoveries, uh, which is amazing wow. because only 30% of people survive a cardiac arrest during a race. Uh, yeah, both these runners made full recoveries. Uh, they both ended up having severe coronary artery disease, a severe blockage in the left anterior descending all calcium plaque blockage in the artery we call a widow maker. And, wow. uh, and both of them, here's the best, here's the best. Both of them now <laughs> follow a nearly exclusively whole food, whole food plant-based diet and no, no influence, oh, from, of course, you know, <laughs> no, right. Wink, wink. <laughs> so that is amazing. So I don't even know where to begin. What were you thinking when you saw the first one? And then the second one, like what, in, would you, are you just like going through the motions? Cause this is. Well, yeah. I mean, the first one, I was very frazzled and, you know, you got the adrenaline surging and you're kind of like, you know, uh, have that rush that, that you feel when you're in an emergent situation, which I've, you know, during our residency, uh, we used to carry the code pager and had to respond to codes. And it was such a big university hospital I was at when I had to leave the codes, we would get three, four, five codes a night. And so I was so used to that, you know, doing the CPR and trying to figure out what's wrong. But there's a big adrenaline rush and you get a little, you know, you get a little bit shaky and a little bit frazzled and stuff. And so after that first guy, I was shaky and frazzled. It'd been a long time since I'd uh, done one uh, like that. And uh, certainly not, you know, without the support of, of IV access and a nurse and a crash card and, uh, you know, right there, uh, so definitely <laughs> right. much, much different. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I knew, I knew what to do from my training, thank goodness. And anybody can learn how to do this. Honestly, CPR training, they, they advocate hands-only CPR. So you just, um, you put push hard and fast in the center of the chest, uh, and call 911 to get a defibrillator and paramedics there. And they always say that when you're doing chest compressions, push to the beat of the song, staying alive, you know, ah, 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 staying alive. That's the right beat. I heard they were going to use, uh, <laughs> Another one bites the dust because that's got the right beat too, but maybe not the most appropriate. Uh, <laughs> <song>. <laughs> I like staying alive versus another one bites the yeah. dust. <laughs> yeah, it makes more sense. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about that. So when you say hands only CPR, because back in the day they used to say two breaths, then you have your your chest compressions, two breaths. So what was the impetus for changing that? Well, I think it was a couple things. People were afraid to do CPR because they didn't want to do mouth to mouth. And that was even before the pandemic hit mm. um, that they changed it over to that. And so they were like, well, geez, you know, you usually have enough oxygen for a few minutes. Uh, the biggest thing is um, circulation and keeping the, the heart pumping and keeping blood flowing. And even when people are in cardiac arrest, they frequently do have a little bit of what we call agonal breathing. So they're getting a little bit of, you know, oxygenation in there. And so for at least, you know, the first five minutes or so, CPR is, is critical. And is, if you're in a hopefully somewhat near, you know, uh, a lot of people in a regular area, you call 911, hopefully somebody will get there within five minutes and uh, and then paramedics will have uh, the proper equipment to, to give some breaths uh, in, in a safer way. But yeah, if it's more than five minutes, probably giving some breaths would be helpful because, you know, not breathing for a long time isn't good either. So... But yeah, heads only CPR is, is so easy to do. I mean, anybody can just do it. Just start pushing hard and fast under the chest. Call 911. That's the most important thing. So um, maybe just a little also, and how how many compressions and then how deep are we going? Because I know if you, the best way to do it is actually to just lock your arms and have your body over because you will get tired just bending your arms yeah. up and down. Especially you got to go really hard and deep. Yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, I can't I don't know actually 
what they say, like inch wise, or I think it depends on the, on the patient, the size of the patient, but yeah. it's really hard. Uh, you got to push really hard. And um, unfortunately you can damage, you can break ribs. You can, uh, people mm -hmm. frequently end up having chest pains or chest discomfort afterwards from all the, the you know, musculoskeletal and the cartilage injury that happens, but, but you got to stay alive. alive. <laughs> exactly. Right. It. So great encouragement, encourage everyone to get CPR certified at least once or, you know, and renew every few years just to, you know, get a primer for the memory, but really good. I used to teach CPR back before medical school. I was, um, I had stayed home for six years and had the kids and during that time I wanted to kind of stay. So I became a CPR instructor. So it's such a valuable piece of information for everyone to learn, but, um, moving on, which is a great segue Go ahead. Well, I was going to say one more thing. Uh, when all this happened, yes. um, you know, my first thought is, I can't believe this happened to a lifestyle medicine cardiologist out of all cardiologists. <laughs> right, that's like true. This, right? Because, you know, exercise is great, but diet is king. And these, these people were exercising and thin and felt good, but they weren't eating clean. And so then when I saw this was getting national attention, uh, the, the Today Show called, we were on the Today Show where the two runners met each other for the first time and um, and I got to reunite with them. The first thing I did when I heard that all this was going crazy is I emailed Neil Barnard of PCRM and I said, hey, uh, I know you've been on all these Today Shows and stuff before and I really want to make sure our plant-based diet's mentioned in these interviews. How can I sneak it in so that they won't like edit that out? And he gave me a lot of great tips and I tried my best. Oh man, it didn't work. Uh, they didn't want to talk about it, right? Uh, they said, eat healthy. They said vague things. You know, Dr. Lowe made sure to say eat healthy, but they... Um, mm. It was, it was only the American Medical Association, American Heart Association, and Daily Mail uh, that really uh, said, um, you know, anything about plant-based diets, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, the Today Show is coming back again, I heard in November, because we're going to run it again. The two runners are coming back, and they're going to run it with me, uh, oh, wow. and it's all going to be over That's there again. Awesome. So I'm working real hard to make sure we get the right lifestyle medicine uh, message out with this whole, uh, you know, revisiting uh, the story. So it's got to use, you know, these moments are wake up calls. Um, I had gained a few pounds in the pandemic. And so this was something that had told me, Hey, uh, clean up your diet here. Cause you might feel good and you're exercising, but diet's King. So. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So great that, so you're, they're going to rerun the race with you a year later for yeah. saving their life to get, Oh my goodness. That's fantastic. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so that, kind of speaks to some of the questions I'd love to ask you that I get a lot about, you know, what are some of the tests that someone who either eats or doesn't eat even a plant-based diet, but specifically, I think I'd like to focus a lot on the folks who do eat a plant-based diet or mostly plant-based diet, because we do get a lot of these questions. People switch over to a plant-based diet, maybe later in life, and they're worried about heart health and long-term health. What would you recommend be kind of the starting test to understand their where they're sitting as far as their cardiac health? Yeah, no, great question. Now, first of all, um, assuming that somebody has no symptoms, uh, they're just, uh, they're feeling fine, but they're trying to get all the risk factors uh, improved. They're trying to lose weight. They're trying to get their cholesterol down, their blood pressure down. Maybe if they have diabetes, put their diabetes in remission through lifestyle. What can they do to check? Well, of course, uh, the one most important test is knowing your cholesterol numbers. That's, that's, key, getting the LDL cholesterol down nice and low. And the sooner in life you get it down, the better, but hey, uh, better late than never. They always say um, it's hugely helpful. 
The other thing that could be done, depending on your medical history, um, not as helpful for diabetics or people who already had a heart attack or a stroke or something, but something called a coronary calcium score is a great screening tool. It's a super uh, fast, easy test, takes literally two seconds, uh, no IV needed. And um, it basically can tell that there's calcified hardened plaque in the coronary arteries. And you get a percentile ranking comparing you to other men or women your exact age to tell you, are you average, worse than average, better than average? We hope you score a zero. A zero means no calcium plaque buildup whatsoever. Uh, around 400 is considered kind of high risk. If you're 400 or higher, over 800 is very high risk. Mm -hmm. And if we get scores that are very high, uh, then there could be some consideration for more advanced testing if needed. But even that's a little bit questionable if somebody has no symptoms. Mm, interesting. Well, I just recently got mine. Mine's zero. Uh, so All right. I was like, Good yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but uh, so that kind of begs the question, let's talk in the gray zones because there's a lot of gray zones for folks. What if someone is transitioned to a whole food plant-based diet and their score is like between zero and a hundred? Like, what is that? What do you do there? And their cholesterol is pretty good, but they're not, you know, LDL less than a hundred. So what do you, how do you cancel these people? Do you speak to their, do a statin? Do you just say, we keep watching it? What do you, where do you even begin? Yeah. So what I would say is a score between zero and a hundred is still not, I mean, it depends on, on your age and gender and such, but it's still not that high of a, a score. Uh, with that score, it's very unlikely that there's any severe clogging of the coronary arteries that's putting somebody at risk or could be causing symptoms. But certainly it's better to have a score of, of zero uh, than a score of 100. Uh, so in those instances, we really don't do anything different besides um, the, the typical get your cholesterol numbers down, eat healthy, try to reach ideal body weight, of course, avoid tobacco, uh, all those types of things. You could do other things like uh, checking C-reactive protein for inflammatory markers and such. But um, there wouldn't be anything specific to do except using that as kind of a motivating tool. And I think that's one of the mm -hmm. things that calcium scores uh, help a lot with. Same with some of these advanced uh, cholesterol panels with, you know, particle sizes and everything. There's not a lot of specific interventions to do, but if somebody has a higher risk finding uh, their calcium score is high, it tells them, hey, listen, man, look at this. Um, I'm at risk here. I really need to work hard to get things in order. Uh, but at the same time, if somebody scores a zero, I tell them straight out, it's not a ticket to go party here because, uh, you know, it's not a perfect test. A calcium score is not a perfect test. If you have mostly softer plaque that's cholesterol based, you could score zero on a calcium score, but still have a severe blockage and still be at risk of a heart attack because the softer, more cholesterol plaque, which doesn't have any calcification, can still trigger a heart attack if the plaque uh, ruptures and, and clots cutting off blood supply. So uh, score zero is great, but not a ticket to go party. If you score 100, mm -hmm. uh, it's not that high, but it's um, a good motivator to make sure we have all the other parameters in, you know, in right where we want them to be. Gotcha. So if you have someone who's eating a plant-based diet, um, calcium score zero, but their cholesterol stays, you know, LDL is above 100, their total cholesterol is above 200, low 200s. This I've seen several days. This is why I'm getting more specific. Um, you know, they don't want to start a stat and they feel fine. They're exercising. They're doing everything correct. What do you counsel for these folks? Because again, you know, their LDL is above ideal and 
how do you even start that conversation? What do you do? Yeah, so it's a great question. I get that a lot too. And I've seen that a handful of times as well. Uh, so first of all, uh, I make sure they're really following 100% whole food, plant-based, uh, hopefully oil-free if you can, diet. Uh, because I've had a lot of people telling me I'm doing everything perfect. I'm following what you say. My LDL is still 110, 120. And I say, go through what we eat. And then all of a sudden here it comes out, oh, I still eat two eggs a week. Or, oh, you know, I do have chicken every once in a while. I'm like, wait a second. You told me you were, you were, you're mm-hmm. eating plant-based. So how do they define plant-based? Because I need to say 100% exclusively whole food plant-based. They're thinking I'm eating mostly plant-based, but some people are hypersensitive to dietary cholesterol and saturated fat in just little amounts can raise the LDL. So the first thing I do is make sure that they truly are 100% whole food plant-based and try to keep it lower in fat. So that's the second thing is lower in fat. If you're really overdoing the um, nuts, seeds, avocado, coconut products, which are high in saturated fat, uh, olives, then that can drive the LDL up in some people as well, the higher fat plant-based foods. And that's why the Ornish diet and the Esselstyn's diet is whole food plant-based and very low fat, oil-free and nut seeds, coconut, the higher fat plant foods are essentially eliminated or extraordinarily severely restricted. So I, I make sure that they're trying their best to do that. The other thing is I have a lot of people that say, uh, you know, I'm following this and maybe they are, but they're not at their ideal body weight a little bit overweight. And research shows that um, weight impacts LDL cholesterol significantly. Uh, About every pound of weight you lose, and this is on average when you look at people on a standard American diet, probably not quite extrapolated to whole food plant-based eaters, but usually about every pound you lose, uh, your LDL comes down by a point. So if somebody's LDL is, uh, is 100, but they're 30 pounds over their ideal body weight, lose that 30 pounds and you're gonna get your LDL down. Uh, so that's another thing that I tell patients. Uh, another one is exercise can lower LDL by anywhere between three and 10 points. So it's not a lot, but you know, you get a lot of people who uh, focus on the diet and they don't exercise. Um, and it's important to do both. While diet is king, it's the most important thing. Uh, exercise is, is helpful too. So exercise can lower LDL cholesterol numbers a little bit. Uh, then another thing I do sometimes, so lots of different pointers is, um, there's something called a portfolio diet, uh, which actually, uh, there's a percentage of people that if you add plant, uh, phytosterols and more soy to your diet, it actually can help bind some of the cholesterol and drive your LDL down further. It's still hundred percent plant-based, but it adds some additional, uh, components to it. So people can look up the portfolio diet and see where they're at. And so then, um, I remember when I first got into this, asking uh, asking um, Dr. Esselstyn and Dr. Ornish, uh, as well as Neil Barnard, these the same question because I didn't know what the, how does how to answer it. And what Esselstyn says is, "Hey, as long as you are whole food, plant based, oil free, exercising, not smoking, if your LDL slightly up, no big deal. You're protecting your arteries from damage and inflammation. Little elevations of LDL like 90 to 100, you're going to be fine. However, if you have severe coronary disease," he would still advocate a low dose of a statin to get it less than 70 is so critical that if you're doing everything and you have heart disease, just take the statin and get it down, even if it's just a little dinky dose. Um, I know some other people go for AMLA, which is what Indian gooseberry, I think, uh, can lower the LDL, Mm -hmm. but not going to hurt you to eat some Indian gooseberry, see if you can get it down. But I, I do recommend avoiding red yeast rice extract because that's, there's not a lot of quality controls. There's not a lot of good science and the statin that supposedly is in there when it was studied in animals, which of course I don't advocate animal research, but um, it caused liver cancer. So it was never brought to human trials. So 
uh, not a good idea to, to use that. So I know that was a lot of different things I just said about trying to bring your elder yeah. out if you're eating whole food, plant-based, uh, low fat, but there's, it's a complex question and every, every situation is different. So. Right. No, I, but I think those are really good points. And I do notice that, you know, the BMI is not, I, it's not a perfect standard to look at right. someone's ideal weight, but it's what we can utilize quickly and especially in a clinical setting. But I found that if I can get people under BMI of 22, that seems to really shift some numbers. Um, so 25 is still what they consider an under as a normal weight. But honestly, I, I if I can get them closer to 22 or lower, that seems to me like you're kind of saying things shift for them. Their diabetes gets better. Their cholesterol gets better. So I, I, it, it is an interesting um, thing to consider. Absolutely. Yeah. The AMLA, yeah. I tell people to do AMLA, berberine, uh, we do, uh, Brazil nuts, uh, the yeah. soy, <laughs> all those good things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, that's fantastic. So, okay. And then as far as when you say exercise is important, how important would you say exercise like, and what types of exercise really impact the heart health? Because, you know, I always tell people, let's start on the diet. You'll feel better than let's start moving. Um, what do you, what would you suggest would be minimal in an idea if there is an ideal? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, what I, what I think about, uh, well, first of all, aerobic exercise, endurance exercise is considered to be the most heart healthy versus resistance training. Um, and so the formal recommendations, which is backed by pretty good science is 30 to 60 minutes a day five days out of the week of something that gets your heart rate a little bit elevated. You get a little short of breath, maybe slightly sweaty. So just a walk or a stroll in the park isn't enough. It's got to be a very brisk walk or some uphills or um, a bike, a swim, a jog, uh, whatever, go dancing, whatever you like, uh, 30 to 60 minutes a day, five days out of the week. Um, so that gives you two days of rest. But then they do say two days of resistance uh, training uh, is helpful. Now we're not talking about bench pressing, you know, hundreds of pounds or doing huge heavy squats. It's just some simple things, doing some core exercises, maybe light dumbbells, you know, stepping up and down on a, on a box, just those, you know, simple things like that. That's the formal guidelines and the, and the formal recommendations. But um, what I, what I also find though, uh, well, the, the two keys that I tell my patients to exercise, number one is uh, you got to really choose an exercise you love. Absolutely work hard on this because if you don't love it, you're not going to do it on a regular basis. It's a lifelong habit that's important to keep. And if you just say, you know, January 1st, New Year's resolution, I'm going to sign up for the gym and you get all motivated and you go for two weeks and then February 1st, you know, you're not going anymore. That's not going to help you. So focus on loving what you do, whether it's uh, getting in a group that exercises together with friends or saying the only time I get to watch Netflix is when I'm on the treadmill or whatever it ends up being, whatever. Uh, and then the second thing is ease into it slowly because if you go too hard, too fast, you'll injure yourself physically and mentally burn out no more than 10% increase of what you do per week. And mm. if somebody is trying to transition and get their health back, um, I don't always focus on the diet first. Uh, and at least mm. I, I focus on diet. Yes, of course, with them, but at, at the same, but I don't defer exercise because at least for me personally, I found that when I was 270 pounds eating a standard American diet and I was trying to get my health back, I would go out and walk three miles and go home and look at that donut and be like, nope, I just burned off 300 calories. And that was hard <laughs> for me walking three miles. I ain't going to blow it on a donut. So the exercise mm -hmm. made me eat healthier. 
uh, because I didn't want to waste everything that I, I had just done. So I think sometimes exercise is a good tool to also get people to think about their food, uh, especially when they're trying to lose weight. Mm, that's interesting because I, I will have patients do the opposite, right? They're like, oh, I just exercise. So now it means I can eat because I burnt off. So that's yeah. the rationale. So yeah. it's really interesting how people pivot and look at different things utilizing yeah. Well, though, because you've been on the podcast before, but, but for those who don't know your story, could you tell us a little bit about your entry into a plant-based diet and just kind of your story? Because um, yeah. just to highlight that again. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I um I I was born on a standard American diet. Um, I got up to two hundred seventy pounds. My parents were over three hundred pounds and diabetic. My sister was four hundred and fifty pounds in high school. And I trained at a big university, had no nutrition training. I was trained on just pills and procedures and kind of brainwashed into thinking medications were the solution for everything with no lifestyle medicine focus. And um, it was about four years into my cardiology practice is when I had my own aha moment that I needed to get my health back in order. And um, walking up a flight of stairs, I remember getting short of breath and my, a couple of my kids, I have six plant-based kids, uh, a couple of my kids were at the top of the stairs and they're looking at me like, dad, why can't you come up the stairs? And I'm like, I just have to rest. I'm short of breath. And it just hit me like, oh my gosh, I got to do something. And so as I tried to recapture my own health, uh, it really coincided well with my frustrations practicing cardiology because I, I was feeling something was missing. I was just prescribing pills and, um, you know, patients didn't like the pills. They cost money. They have side effects. And even if I gave them all the right medications, they might still have heart attacks or strokes or, or you know, need a bypass surgery or something. I, I knew something was missing, but I just, it didn't hit me until Netflix randomly said, hey, check out Forks Over Knives. And so I watched mm. it and instantly became angry. Uh, and um, at that point, when I watched Forks Over Knives, I was already two years into my journey trying to lose weight, doing all the wrong things, focusing on exercise, you know, still eating unhealthy foods in moderation. I didn't want to give up the donuts and the cookies. I just ate them much less frequently. Uh, and I was following USDA dietary guidelines, chicken, fish, low-fat dairy products, olive oil. My cholesterol numbers were still high. I, things still weren't quite right. And so when Forks Over Nice hit me, it really hit me hard. And, and I was just mad uh, that I didn't know this stuff uh, before and it wasn't in my training. And so there started my whole... Uh, uh, passion for lifestyle medicine and, and spreading this message. And then it, it, it made, it brought the joy back into me practicing medicine, honestly, because I don't think I would have been able to uh, maintain a, a cardiology practice like that for my whole career. Mm, mm. And so how long ago was this? So you've been plant-based for how long now? Now it was, uh, it was 2016 is when I watched Forks Over Knives. So that's seven years. Yeah. I've been in uh, awesome. my cardiology practice for 13 years now. Uh, Time flies. Amazing. Yes. Oh, it does. It does. Very good. And you mentioned so six kids <laughs> you and your it. wife, uh, their ages, and they're all plant based. Yeah. My youngest is five. So I have a five year old, a seven year old, 10 year old, 12 year old, 15 year old, and 16 year old. <laughs> yes. And they're all 100% plant based. And they're doing great. Our last two were born uh, and raised 100% plant based. They've never had an animal product in their diet. And they're they're great kids. They're super smart and energetic and super healthy. And um, yeah. yeah, you just don't need those animal foods. No, kids can grow very healthy on a yeah. plant-based diet. Absolutely. Um, no, that's fantastic. So as far as how do you approach patients who come to see you because, or maybe give some advice on 
yes, you're seeing patients, this is what you would say to them, but maybe someone who is plant-based and they have a loved one that's dealing with cardiac disease or diabetes, any advice to speak to them? Like, what have you seen resonate well with patients? Yeah, so it's hard. So um, every every situation is different. And really, uh, over time, you kind of develop a skill to feel out that individual patient, how far they're willing to go right away. Does it have to be baby steps? Are they willing to go and throw everything out in the refrigerator and go shopping and start all over? Uh, and, and so really, you know, I have patients who are willing to do that, but that's not the most common type of patient, you know, uh, you, uh, you know, probably see a select few who are, are motivated and are coming to you specifically for this. I'm getting patients who came into the emergency room who had no mindset of lifestyle medicine and plant-based diets, who just had a heart attack, or they just had an issue. And then all of a sudden I throw it at them and they're just kind of like, what, <laughs> you know, why aren't you talking to me about medications and all these things? And, uh, and, and it's much harder for them. Now, some people still can make those changes, but you got to feel them out. I always tell everybody, you know, hundred percent plant-based is ideal, but if I really feel like it's going to be hard for them, I start by, you know, still saying hundred percent is ideal, but I soften the message and say, try to get yourself first to 90%, get the processed foods out, reduce the animal foods. And honestly, one of the key things that just helps people a lot is don't tell them you have to give up this, that, whatever, because they might shut down and they might just not listen to anything you say. Uh, is I just say, here's some recipes, here's some recipe websites, here's some videos to watch. I actually have an email I send my patients, but just start by one meal a day eating something, you know, out of this selection, which is usually something that's, you know, Ornish or Esselstyn compliant. And if you eat more food that's whole food, plant-based, low fat, just eat a meal a day that way. By default, you're going to get rid of unhealthy foods, number one. Number two, you're going to slowly develop your healthy, you know, repertoire of, of meals that you like and you enjoy that make you feel full. And then, we, you know, we go through all the nuances, how to make sure that you, you are full on it and keeping it low fat because people get confused. They still, you know, put oil all over everything or they, they're eating a plant-based meal with butter all over it or something. So a lot of these yeah. nuances, you know, you have to kind of make sure you educate them on. And so the failure of our system, honestly, is if a cardiologist even wants to focus on this, but has a 15 minute appointment with the patient, it can happen. It's hard, to, you, know, you can't get through this stuff, right? And so you need a multidisciplinary approach, a good team, long appointments, you know, uh, a plant-based dietitian or health coach, and then looking at everything else, the stress in their life, their sleeping habits, uh, the people they live with, their work. I mean, there's so many other things that the culture that that we're in makes it so challenging to make, uh, you know, to make the proper changes. So trying to give them advice about all of those different details and nuances, and then, you know, refer them to a multidisciplinary program, whether it's a CHIP lifestyle medicine program or after a, a cardiac event. I hear the Ornish program for cardiac rehab is now virtual mm -hmm. online. You can get at it anywhere. So that's mm -hmm. a great resource. Mm -hmm. Oh, Absolutely. So, yeah, I'd like, just as you were talking, and it just made me think of some other things, but I also want to, if you have any patient stories you'd like to share, but before that, some other questions that we've had um, is, if someone switches to a plant-based diet, they have a history of heart disease, they're on a statin, would you ever speak to them about either decreasing the statin, is there, do you look at just the LDL as a guiding light on that, or would you ever say someone can or can't come off a statin, just out of curiosity, because we do get that question quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I get people who come to me specifically because, oh, you're a lifestyle medicine doctor. I want off all these meds. And it's like, <laughs> exactly. it doesn't always work that way. There's still benefits <laughs> right. to medications for sure. 
And I was very much so trained to be very, what we call evidence-based. So we have these guidelines for the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, which say what to do for blood pressure and cholesterol and, and heart disease. Uh, and certainly I still try to follow those guidelines, but you work with each patient because everybody has different preferences and such. But yes, LDL is, is key, uh, keeping the LDL at least under 70, preferably in the mid 50 range is better. So if somebody's on a statin with heart disease, they change the whole food plant-based oil-free and their LDL drops to 30 or 20, then I start backing off on the medication, uh, trying to keep it in the mid 50 range. Now, uh, if it gets to the point where they're able to get their LDL down to you know 60 or so, um, without medication, uh, which can happen, certainly, um, yet they have heart disease, that's where you don't really know. So a lot of people would say, oh, there's these pleiotrophic effects of statins, these anti-inflammatory effects, even in the setting of a normal LDL cholesterol number, they can reduce events. Now, those types of studies aren't as robust, and they're certainly not on 100% plant-based diet followers. Um, so it's hard to answer that question. If you have somebody whole food, plant-based, uh, low fat who has real heart disease and they've been through something yet their LDL is 60 off of statins, will a low dose of a statin improve outcomes? I don't know, probably not. I, I'm thinking probably not. And so I, I, uh, take a case by case. If I have the patient doesn't mind taking it, they're on a low dose and they have no side effects, I don't think it's going to be harmful in the long-term low doses. It, there's a lot of safety data on statins. Yes, there's small risks of, of big things happening and, and some unknowns about it for sure. But for the most part, it, it's, you know, I think it's the science shows it's relatively safe. But if, if the patient is just really, I just don't want to take pills and that's their preference, then I, I, I you know, I work with them and yeah, we would, we would keep them off and just make sure the LDL stays down. So check it very regularly because if they all of a sudden go off the diet and cheat, boom, I know what their LDL went up. Mm -hmm. That's why I suspended uh, lipid profiles every two weeks on his patients during his, his clinical trials. Cause if it went up, he's like, you're cheating. You're off the study. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I, I make sure I follow it really close. Um, and, uh, and, you know, make sure their inflammation markers are negative too. Uh, Cause if their CRP is mm -hmm. elevated, then, you know, statins lower CRP. Uh, and so that might be a very strong reason to, to keep them on a statin, even if their numbers are pretty good. Um, what do you consider when you say the HSCRP? Is it less than one or is it that one to three? Like, what do you say is yeah. ideal? Less than one. Yeah. One to three is that intermediate less range one. where it might be a little bit high. Um, uh, less than one is definitely the best way to be. You want to, you know, as low as you can, pretty much undetectable. And it's not a perfect, it's not a perfect test to, you know, some other things can raise CRP, other inflammation, uh, inflammation processes. So it's not an end all be all, but it's kind of the best we've got at this point. Uh, the, the one big trial, that's what I hate about our whole medical world. The one big trial called the Jupiter trial, which took patients at high risk and had high CRPs, and they randomized half of them to rosuvastatin and half of them to placebo. Rosuvastatin lowered CRP and, and improved uh, outcomes, significantly heart attacks and such. But it was funded by the company that makes rosuvastatin and the company that does the CRP blood test. So mm. then it's like, oh, man, come on. You know, I guess, you know, hopefully there's a lot of ethical controls in those types of research, but uh, you like to believe that it's a, a true... Um, benefit and a, a true results, but you, you just, the only way these studies get funded is if the companies that are going to profit off of it, give the money towards the study. And then you, you wonder about biases and it's just, we have to work with that data because that's all we have. Right. Great. Absolutely. Gosh. Okay. No, that's, 
exactly. There's so much we could talk about that, but <laughs> questions that I'm going to, that we get, um, sage up or heart failure. Can you speak to, do you see improvements switching to a plant-based diet with this? What other things can help someone regain any heart function with the CHF? And is there a point that there usually isn't any significant improvement? Yeah, so with congestive heart failure, which is a, a situation where the heart just simply isn't pumping enough blood to meet the demands of the body, uh, how diet impacts that is it, pretty significant, but it really just depends on the cause of the congestive heart failure. The most common cause is what we call ischemic cardiomyopathy, which is when the coronary arteries clog and it's a heart attack and the heart gets weakened. And certainly in those instances, you're going to prevent progression of disease, prevent heart attack. Uh, and there's actually a little bit of data that shows um, that you can improve uh, heart strength and function by switching to plant-based. There's a lot of case studies and anecdotal stories. Uh, one of the biggest case studies was over in Indiana, I remember. It was a guy who had an ischemic cardiomyopathy on a transplant list because his heart was so weak with such bad heart failure. And he went through the Ornish program. And mm. just with that, uh, he was already maximized on medications. His heart function improved significantly and he got so well that they took him off the, the heart transplant list. Um, and unfortunately, since there's not enough money in, in plant-based eating uh, to fund huge clinical trials, there's not as much research to really show this, but uh, I know I remember um, seeing presentations at some of these nutrition conferences where data was presented that uh, outcomes dramatically improve with switching to plant-based, not just ischemic, but even non-ischemic, which is when something else weakens the heart, whether it's viral or um, alcoholic or genetic or, or whatever. So, you know, the data is strong, but it depends on the cause. No question, ischemic related heart failure from heart attacks, huge improvements, but even, even other ways too. If you lose weight, your blood pressure comes down, diabetes is controlled, it's going to be good for your overall heart health uh, in the setting of heart failure. Mm, absolutely. Okay. And then um, anything else that would help with the heart failure, exercise, those type of things as well? Yeah. Yeah. Exercise has really been shown to do that. Uh, cardiac rehab, anybody whose heart strength is 35% or less, uh, insurance companies will actually pay for a formal cardiac rehab program. Uh, which which is great, uh, which could include an Ornish program, right? So mm -hmm. uh, if uh, an Ornish is, it could be virtual. Uh, the Ornish program uh, includes exercise, but also the whole food plant-based, uh, low-fat cooking, wellness, like meditation and um, group support as well to help everybody kind of uh, to make sure they're successful with it all. So anybody who has heart failure in an ejection fraction less than 35%, I would say, uh, ask uh, your doctor if you can do a cardiac rehab program and specifically an Ornish program and insurance will pay for it. Mm, that's fabulous. Okay, absolutely. No, the other, the Ornish program is, is amazing because it's so, it's, in, it's like, it's like nine hours a week for nine weeks or something now. It's, it's pretty intense, yeah. um, which is great. Uh, then let's go back to the heart. Uh, what about AFib or atrial fibrillation? We'll have some folks have a question about that. Anything there about a plant-based diet? Oh, no question. And this is very evidence-based. Mm -hmm. So first of all, um, there's strong evidence that says a weight loss in atrial fibrillation patients significantly will, will reduce uh, atrial fibrillation burden and symptoms. It's in the formal guidelines from the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology with the highest grade of evidence saying patients with atrial fibrillation should lose weight down to a normal weight. Um, now, I remember... I gave a, a presentation on lifestyle medicine and heart disease at this big cardiac rehab conference uh, in the Midwest once. 
Uh, I don't know, there's about a thousand people there. And I spoke all about, you know, plant-based diets, reversal of heart disease, all these things. And right after me, this uh, professor uh, got up and was gave his next presentation for the next hour on atrial fibrillation. And I was talking about ablations yeah. and medicines and all these things. And of course, being the annoying guy in the front row, I raised my hand at the end as he was taking questions. And I said, hey, you heard my presentation. What I don't know the research on this. I don't see any published data, but what you're an expert in is what percentage of atrial fibrillation do you think is preventable by you know regular exercise, maintaining a healthy weight, eating a plant-based diet? And he said, I would guess 95%. And I was like, what? wow. He said oh. the, the only time, the only time that it's uh there's a very small percentage that's purely genetic, it's very small, maybe one percent or two percent. Then you have some that's related to heart valve disease that maybe doesn't relate to diet or lifestyle, but uh, they say 80% of patients with atrial fibrillation have sleep apnea. And the biggest thing for sleep apnea is weight, right? Losing weight helps. Um, and uh, high blood pressure has always historically been thought to be the number one cause of atrial fibrillation. And of course, how much does plant-based eating and lifestyle medicine improve blood pressure? It's dramatic, uh, especially if you started early in life, uh, a majority, a vast majority of atrial fibrillation would be preventable. Uh, and once you have atrial fibrillation, Maybe you've already had some change in your heart and your atrium. Maybe it's a little bit enlarged and remodeled already, but the science shows that the weight loss, controlling blood pressure, controlling sleep apnea can dramatically reduce any future recurrence of atrial fibrillation. So no question, uh, there could be a, a huge impact. Well, you kind of spoke, thank you for that. Um, gets back to, you mentioned hypertension, high blood pressure. So what if we have someone who's following a plant-based diet, but their blood pressure just won't drop? Like you'll see some improvement, but they still can't get off medications. Any advice there or is, is it just kind of what it is? Yeah, it's challenging because, um, you know, hypertension is very complex. Uh, multi, multiple different systems in your body control your blood pressure all the way from your brain, your arteries, your veins, your heart, your kidneys, and different hormones. And so uh, each situation is, it could be potentially unique, but uh, certainly the, the guidelines from the ACC and AHA emphasize uh, plant-based diets and, and lifestyle first. And uh, the data shows as much as 90% of blood pressure, maybe even more, uh, can be completely put into remission if you were able to do all the proper lifestyle changes, uh, you know, whole food plant-based, regular exercise, sleeping good, getting rid of alcohol and salt, and trying to get to ideal body weight, which a lot of people again, when their blood pressure is still high and they say they're doing everything right, they're not yet at their ideal body weight. They're not exercising enough. They're still drinking wine two, three, four times a week. And some people are very sensitive to that. And just little bits of alcohol can raise their blood pressure. So just like um, when somebody's LDL is high, and I said, make sure they're actually following 100% plant-based because maybe they're sneaking in eggs or chicken or something. It's the same thing. Make sure they're doing the right thing because they, they there's a lot of different things with alcohol and salt and sleep and an exercise. Uh, if somebody is, it's it's really rare that if somebody is doing everything absolutely perfect, that their blood pressure is still high. And in those instances, yeah, maybe maybe the damage is already done to their system, uh, and you're not going to be able to put their hypertension in complete remission. And so uh, the use of medications might be needed if their blood pressure is way too high. Um, there's no, unfortunately, magic uh, treatment you know, people say, oh, blueberries for hypertension, flax seeds and things like that. And it's great. Uh, people should be doing those things anyways as a part of a whole food plant-based diet, but increasing any one specific med uh, food component in the diet doesn't have, I don't think as far as I know, uh, enough data to really say 
uh, eat this, eat that, you know, beets and their nitrates or whatever. Um, that never hurts to play around with that stuff, uh, but there's no magic key for everybody else. So uh, I first make sure everybody's doing all the right things. And if it's still a little bit high, if you got to use the medications, you got to use the medications. But we also think about what's called secondary causes. Do they have uncontrolled sleep apnea? Even if their weight's normal, you might still have it. Is there something else hormonally going on? Um, kidney artery blockages, things like that. So we get into all those details to make sure there's not something else funky uh, in the background, raising the blood pressure. Exactly. Kate, so now when we, so we've talked about several of the other things associated with heart health. Can we get into some of the specifics? Some people will talk about like heart rate variability and HRV. Any thoughts on, can you educate us about what that is and yeah. ways to improve it? Yeah. So unfortunately, uh, again, the data isn't super strong with huge randomized controlled trials, but there's enough for us to make some, some general statements about it. Um, when people exercise, if their heart rate doesn't come down fast enough, uh, it's, a, it's actually been shown to those patients have a little bit of a higher cardiovascular risk. But one of the reasons is, is that um, it's predominantly related to uh, being deconditioned uh, and being out of shape. So once somebody conditions themselves adequately, a lot of times that goes away. And so sometimes we'll be doing treadmill tests and and then uh, the exercise physiologist will come up to me, we've had this patient for 20 minutes and their heart rate's still 110, 120, you know, it's not coming down. I'm like, well, you know, it's just a sign that they're higher risk, but uh, it's probably because they're out of shape and um, we don't do anything else specific. We don't, you know, treat it with anything besides just saying exercise, eat healthy, lose weight, do all those things. The, the other thing that I get in regards to heart rate variability uh, quite a bit is, um, you know, people who are exercising and monitoring their heart rate. Uh, we, you know, for moderate intensity exercise, 50 to 70% of your age predicted maximum and vigorous could be more like closer to 80%. Some people be like, why is it that when I'm just doing a light jog, my heart rate's at like 90% of my age max maximum. And it's just so, so much faster than what you know, all these calculations say I should be. And I don't have a great answer to that. There's just a small percentage of people that will fall outside the normal ranges. And I'm one of them. I'll be going on my, uh, you know, I did an eight mile run the other day. My heart rate's sitting at 170. And I'm like, wow, for me, that's really fast. That's, you know, 90 something percent of my age predicted maximum. Uh, I don't know why my heart rate's so fast, but I know I don't have heart disease. So um, there is a lot of variability and there's no good answers to some of those nuances uh, and situations. So for the most part in our, our current guidelines, we don't emphasize the heart rate variability a lot, honestly. Hmm. Uh, with this most common scenario that it becomes clinically relevant is just somebody who's out of shape and their heart rate stays too high for too long. Gotcha, gotcha. And then what about, what is VO2 max and what does that entail because you know just from the component of people start getting into exercise and they hear all these words is it important something they should be paying attention to because all the smart watches you can check all sorts of things so yeah i get a lot of questions about a lot of different things so <laughs> yeah so vo2 max um the amount of oxygen that you can maximally utilize you know during exercise uh in in the clinical world in the heart disease world it honestly doesn't play much of a role unless you're talking about advanced heart failure they use it as a parameter to see if somebody with advanced heart failure is in such bad shape that they, you know, are going to end up needing a heart transplant. Outside mm -hmm. of that, in the clinical world, we don't use VO2 max for anything whatsoever. 
And I know a lot of these watches can measure it. I think we would question a little bit of the accuracy because the proper way to do VO2 max is a, a kind of a metabolic stress test where you actually are wearing this big mask and it's measuring your carbon dioxide uh, as you're exhaling and oxygen and all these different things. Uh, it, it's, it's a complex test. Uh, and it's not just something that your watch can, you know, figure out for you. So I think uh, authorities would really question the accuracy of any wearable devices measuring VO2 max. But VO2 max is predominantly thought to be a, a, a lot of it is genetic, honestly. You can train yourself a little bit to improve your, your VO2 max, but some people uh, are just really gifted and they have that that vo2 max capacity that is amazing you know when you have those families of olympic marathon runners or whatever uh they just have a very high high vo2 max so you know in in the mm. in the cardiology world we honestly don't emphasize it much at all mm, excellent i think lance armstrong was one of those people like they were like doing biopsies and outside of his drug use but <laughs> it's yeah. fascinating genetically he was gifted that's fascinating so this has been wonderful and I've taken up an hour of your time already, but as far as any final advice that you would give someone um, that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I think your audience uh, is a great audience. They're all focused on their health. And this is like my favorite, uh, my favorite type of audience, of course, because I get a lot of patients that, um, you know, don't want to make the lifestyle changes or it's more challenging. So it's so great that if you listen this long to the podcast, that means you're highly motivated. And so I, I congratulate you all. Um, but I, you know, I think that the key is that heart disease is, is the number one killer. It's nearly hundred percent preventable. And what I always like to tell people is that even if you're not a doctor, or even if you're not a nurse or in the healthcare uh, industry, through this knowledge and through knowing how powerful lifestyle medicine can be, you actually have the power to save other people's lives, you know, by spreading this message, by being a good example, by helping other people understand how this can be. And it's an amazing feeling. And I'm so lucky in my job uh, to be able to have situations where I can impact people's lives, not just those marathon runners, but but my patients. And I want all of you to experience that as well. Be the right messenger uh, and, and share the power of lifestyle medicine and think to yourself, whose life can I save just by spreading this knowledge and, and motivating them and inspiring them? Lead by example first, but then you know, get them into this as well. And um, literally saving somebody's life is one of the best things you can do. And nobody else can better state that than yourself. So that's fantastic. So thank you, Dr. Loom, for your time today and all your wonderful advice. And um, this was fabulous. And I'm sure it will be well received, um, but it's exciting to have you on the podcast. So thanks again. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I love your podcast. You do a great job. <laughs>